announced we announced one move uh, this week, but we also are this is the last Sunday for the Washburns and for Katie Mannion. Uh, they are both moving on Tuesday, uh, going separate ways. The Washburns to Michigan uh, to start over there, and Katie for her freshman year of college in Manhattan. Um, I'm sure Katie will have a, a good load, but the Washburns, that's going to be a traveling circus. They have quite, quite the number of animals going with them, so uh, we enjoyed having you guys here for the time that God brought you. Um, I have to start with a, with a story uh, that has nothing to do with the sermon, just because I didn't know where it was going to fit, because um, it happened yesterday. <laughs> if you've uh, watched the sports world at all, you saw... Uh, the LPGA is in the middle of a tournament, and it's in Columbus, Ohio, uh, right near where my parents live. And so my dad was at the uh, course yesterday following around uh, a threesome of women, including Annika Sorenstam, that great golfer, and uh, he was standing by the 13th green, and two of them hit their balls up onto the green, and a golfer named Wendy Ward hit hers, and it was coming right at my dad. And so he kind of ducked and, and held his head like this, and he felt it hit him in the hip. And he had a water bottle there. And he, he thought, well, it hit me, it must have bounced out somewhere, and everybody's pointing to his pocket. He can't believe that a ball just landed, right? I guess he had a water bottle, it just propped it open enough. And... Uh, so actually, he kind of followed them through, and uh, Wendy Ward signed the ball and everything at the end, and <laughs> sounded like a sermon illustration, just <laughs> didn't know the application. As you get your outlines ready, <laughs> that's what it is. God's sovereignty. Very good. Very good. That's a good answer to everything. There was a pastor once who decided that he needed to go on a diet. And he struggled, uh, but he tried to cut out everything that he needed to, to really lose some weight. He felt that was a good thing to strive for, New Year's resolution. Um, but his hardest, the hardest part of his week was driving past the donut shop every day on the way to the office. Because this particular donut shop had the best donuts, best coffee. And so the morning he needed to go past there, he decided to uh, leave it to God. And he said, God, if it's your will that I stop for coffee and donuts, which would really hit the spot about now, make there be an open parking spot right in front. And sure enough, the seventh time around the block... There it was. See, God's sovereignty is so easy to figure out, isn't it? His will, sometimes. <laughs> that story does have a little bearing <laughs> on the sermon. As we come to the close of our study, our intensive study of Romans 12, 1 and 2. Last week, uh, Pastor Crenshaw talked about how we prove the will of God. Not in the sense that we have to figure out if it's right or wrong, good or evil, but to discover it and learn it by prayer, scripture, and counsel. And so we started into uh, the will of God last week. 
And this week we have the very last phrase. And I like how uh, the New Living puts it. And you will know how good and pleasing and perfect His will really is. And so today the sermon is about three adjectives. I don't think I've ever preached a sermon quite like that. But uh, that is my duty this morning. And um, so that you don't wear out your Bible flipping back and forth. I've got a, a ton of verses. I'm going to just have them right up here for you. So I thought before we looked at how good, pleasing, and perfect relates to God's will, um, I would just do a quick study of how those words are used in God's word. So to isolate each one, we'll start with the word good. And the two most obvious uses of good that we probably use them much, and the Bible uses them in many ways to indicate something that's positive, right? Good health, good behavior. Yeah. We use it all the time as a noun, the opposite of evil, right? But I also see the, use, the word good used as a noun that God is concerned with our state of being. Deuteronomy 10.13, Observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. And Romans 8.28, that we'll come back to later, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. God is concerned with our good, our state of being. But it's also a great description of God. And, and yes, we know that from, from Sunday school a long time ago. God is good. God is great. God is good. Um, but God's goodness is so often expressed in how He deals with us. Listen to a couple of these verses. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore He instructs sinners in His ways. Taste and see that the Lord is God. The Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. And so we see it's not just the Lord is good, but His goodness spills out and He brings in, uh, He does good to His people. In Mark 10, 18, uh, when the teacher of the law asks, or the rich young ruler, I'm sorry, asks Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answers, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He turns the man's words into a profession of faith. It's the word pleasing is used many different ways in the scriptures. And I think it's important for us to think through what pleases God. We know that worship pleases God. Our actions please God. Uh, Psalm 69 says, I will praise God's name in song and glorify Him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hoofs. Our faith, our, our attitudes as we come to the Lord, please Him. We know this from Hebrews 11, without faith it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Uh, other attitudes and actions we have are fear and hope. As the Psalm 147 tells us, His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor His delight in the legs of a man. The Lord delights in those who fear Him, who put their hope in His unfailing love. 
But more than our attitudes and our actions, all of life, how we live, will please the Lord. When a man's ways, the proverb says, are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies live at peace with him. And then Colossians 1.10 says, And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power. And finally, we see that Jesus Christ pleased God. This is my Son, whom I love. With Him, I am well pleased. God says from a voice from heaven when Jesus is baptized. And, and Jesus knew this. Jesus is speaking here in John 8.20. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases Him. And so God is pleased in Christ, but He's pleased in us when we are Christ-like. And finally, we have this word perfect. And there's, there's three ways that it's used in the Bible. The first way is, is probably how we would use it, accurate or correct. But, it, you know, the Bible doesn't use perfect very often like that um, to say it's 100% right without flaws or blemish. Um, more often, it, it's speaking of maturity, the mature adult, the mature Christian, uh, someone, something that has attained its full destiny. Noah, Asa, Job, there are a number of people that are described as perfect, either them themselves or their, their ways, their actions were perfect. But we know that uh, this doesn't mean they hadn't sinned. I mean, we think of Noah's sins of drunkenness and um, that's not what the Bible's indicating. The Bible's indicating that they had reached a maturity that was a high level of morality. So that's the way uh, Jesus speaks with that understanding. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, and again, we have to assume he's not meaning completely sinless, but mature in Christ. Sell your possessions, give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Paul says, we proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Again, not the perfection of, of flawlessness, but the perfection of maturity. Uh, our, our hearts and emotions can achieve this maturity, this perfection. As First Chronicles 28, uh, is, my son Solomon acknowledged the God of your father and serve him with a perfect heart. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. And really, I think only when it applies to God do we see that perfect means flawless. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. So we've flown through some verses, some understanding of these three uh, words, but now let's Let's talk about God's will. And this is a good segue verse, actually, because the first understanding of God's will that I want to get to, uh, I'm going to use the same categories that that Dave Crenshaw introduced last week. And one of them that he said is God's moral will. And he defined that as God's will as shown in the commands of Scripture. 
And, and you think of the last will and testament that you would write out that someone would leave when they died. What is that? That's a, indicating what their desire is, what they want to happen. Right? And so God's will can be seen in this idea that God left His commands in the Scriptures. Not because He's dead, but because He's alive. And so His moral will is good, pleasing, and perfect. Now most Reformed people, and and probably most evangelicals, hopefully, would agree with the doctrine of inerrancy. I hope that we're familiar with that term, inerrant, not in error, that the Word of God, uh, technically in its original drafts, but the idea that God's Word has no error. And so it is perfect. So we, we don't, I don't think we have a struggle with that. Maybe if you don't agree with inerrancy, um, Dave would be happy to talk to you about it. <laughs> Recommend some books. But I think our struggle is with the other two. Good and pleasing. I mean, sure, it's easy to, to see some of Christ's commands. We, we would agree with some of these. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and I, you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That's, that's a nice one. That sounds good and pleasing. Isn't it? Unless you know what a yoke is. But um, Matthew 18.5 says, Whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. That's a, that's a good one. I like loving children. But then we stroll through the Sermon on the Mount. These we're not so sure about. Anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Those are a little harder to characterize as good pleasing by our definition. Sounds painful and difficult to me. But God doesn't give us His moral will, His commands to take away our fun, to to make life unbearable. God gives us these commands to give us abundant life and long-term joy and good. I think of C.S. Lewis tells, uh, gives a, a metaphor for our uh, enjoyment of sin in this life. It's like a little child playing in the sandbox who, that's all he knows. And that's what he thinks is the best thing. And his, his parents try to take him on a tropical vacation where there's sand stretching out and beautiful beaches. And the kid throws a fit and doesn't want to leave his sandbox. And that's where we are when we go after short-term sin, after uh, we want to be pleased in in the short term. I think the ultimate example of this is, is in the area of sexuality. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Because the lie that we are told is that sex outside of marriage is good when it's not. It's empty. 
And God promises us wonderful long-term blessings of marriage and the intimate commitment of marriage. And so here we are looking at these commands of Scripture. Are they good, pleasing, and perfect? Maybe not by our definition. Maybe not by our understanding. But we know that God's commands are good for our good and for our ultimate pleasure and perfection and maturing. The second will that that Dave talked about was the sovereign will. In other words, God's actions that don't depend on us, aren't aren't, uh, relying on us for second causes, that God performs and He does them for His own purpose and pleasure. They are good, pleasing, and perfect. Hear from Daniel. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, what? Have you done? When God purposes something, it comes to pass. You think of the bookends of human existence. Creation. As God created each day and saw that it was good. Final judgment and the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth. We know that will be good. And great. And all of God's acts in between are good, pleasing, and perfect because He uses them for His own plans, His own purposes, and His own pleasure. I think that probably the hardest part of God's sovereign will that we have is with the ideas of election and reprobation. I want to throw out complicated terms with you, so let me, uh, just an easy definition would be election, let's, let's consider all of humanity in front of us, and, and everyone, the Bible says, is sinned and headed to hell. Election says that God reaches down and saves some and says, no, I'm going to save you, I'm going to sanctify you, glorify you through my Son, Reprobation is the other part of that, that God doesn't save others. And I promise you that whether someone believes those two uh, theological truths or not, now, when they were first introduced, and maybe that's happening to you right now, when they were first introduced, that doesn't sound good. That doesn't sound right or fair. And yet, I guess the question is how God-centered is your theology? Because if, if God runs the universe to please man and to glorify man, then those don't sound like good, pleasing, or perfect things. But if God runs the universe to glorify Himself, and man is there to bring honor to God, and I think God is free to do as He chooses for His plans, for His purposes. And the last part of this is, is Dave alluded to uh, 
probably the biggest act in history that God used, that was meant for evil, God used for good, the death of Christ. And I think if we asked the disciples and, and Mary at the time, is this a good thing? Is this pleasing, perfect? I don't think they would have agreed. But we know that God used Christ's death for good. It's ultimately why we call that day, the celebration every year, Good Friday. Right? The Old Testament prophesied about it as God's will. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And Jesus himself understood this as he speaks in Matthew 26. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus ultimately surrendered to God's will, to God's hand, to God's plans and purposes. And so that brings us to God's individual will, God's plan for your life. And I was thinking about the most common verse, I think, that's quoted at this point when people talk about God's plan for your life is uh, Jeremiah 29.11, right? It's a great verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. But I think what we miss about this verse, if you've ever looked it up, is the context This is coming, uh, this is in a letter that God gives Jeremiah to take to Israel. And the Israelites at the time are in captivity. They've been taken away from their homeland to Babylon. So Jeremiah is talking to people that have been kidnapped, taken away. God didn't simply allow this, God caused this. And I wonder what would happen if we uh, quoted some of the verses that follow in the same context, the same prophet to the same people from God, saying, I will not completely destroy you. I will discipline you, but only with justice. I will not let you go entirely unpunished. I have struck you as an enemy would and punished you as would the cruel. Because your guilt is so great and your sins so many. But I will restore you to health and heal your wounds. I don't think you're going to see that as the theme of a ministry conference. God wants to strike you as as an enemy and punish you as the cruel. It doesn't make a very good refrigerator magnet. (laughs) Like, I have plans to give you hope and to prosper you. But he's speaking to the same people in the same situation. And I think our tendency is to latch on to the good thing. Well, it's all good in the end, right? We've been looking at But to the pain-free things. To the positive things. And and we, we don't look at that quite as much. Because we hope that God... The will for our life is pain-free, don't we? 
And I guess that's where we have the biggest struggle against this idea that God's will for you is good, pleasing, and perfect. You don't get to define that. God will define what is good for you. And sometimes that's painful things. 1 Peter 4, 19, and, and there's a number of places in the New Testament where it talks about our suffering. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. God doesn't just allow evil. He doesn't cause it in the sense of making us. This, is, this gets into a very technical discussion, but it is often God's will that we suffer. Sometimes, as with the Israelites, we've deserved it sometimes, and it's a direct response and punishments. Sometimes it's for our refining. Sometimes it's for others' sake. You may not understand this side of heaven. And so I guess the question really is, to go back to Romans 8.28, is do we really believe that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose? You see, I think it's very easy for me to look at my life and say, my marriage is, is good, pleasing, and perfect. Thank you, Lord. My kids are wonderful. Thank you, God. Great job, great house, all these things. Um, but as I look back, maybe uh, my family was in a bad car accident that almost killed my mom when I was four. How do I see that? Was that a good, per- pleasing, and perfect thing? Uh, very difficult first job I had right out of college teaching English was probably a low point of my life, um, just feeling like a failure at that. How do I see that? Is that good, pleasing, and perfect? What is there in your life that you can't see as good, pleasing, and perfect? I had a friend in middle school, his name was Eric, and uh, I talked him into coming to youth group with me, uh, and so he started attending our youth ministry, going on retreats, and, and he got saved that year. Uh, he became a Christian, started growing in his faith, it was so exciting to see him. Um, this was the first real friend that I had, had any kind of part in, I, my, my youth pastor really spent some good time with him and explained the gospel to him, but it was so exciting to see Eric grow in a couple of years. But uh, he got his driver's license and was out one night. He hadn't been drinking or anything, um, but he was in the left lane and a, an 18-wheeler, I guess, was coming on the other side and one of the wheels came off, came across the median, smashed through his car, um, turned around a few times and tried to stop. Eric was paralyzed from the neck down. And I remember asking God, I remember just really wrestling with that. Because at the time, I, I thought, God, isn't this what you do to non-Christians? Isn't this either punishment or, or a way to get their attention, to make them come to you? 
You know, Eric was trying to follow you, trying to serve you. But I found out years later, uh, my youth minister, uh, Dan, stayed in touch with him. And, and Eric had really come to terms with what happened to him, I think a lot easier than I had. And he saw that it was part of God's will for his life. Um, many of us know the story of Johnny Erickson Tata, who, uh, when she was a teenager, was in a diving accident, uh, thought the water was a little uh, deeper than it was, was paralyzed as well. And I know that she struggled with why, as we all would. But now she speaks to thousands and thousands of people at conferences, and uh, she lifts her arms as high as she can and shouts, this is the prison where God set me free. And what she means is that the pain and limitation and frustration brought on by her disability threw her back on God in such a way that she discovered what true freedom in life is all about. It's not about arms and legs and skiing and jogging. It's about forgiveness and hope and love. Meaning and eternal life. It's about knowing that God is for you and not against you, even in suffering. God places things in our lives that don't seem good, pleasing, or perfect, but are used for God's purposes. Therefore, they are good, pleasing, and perfect. May we strive for renewed minds so that we can understand that and accept that. And I'm going to finish awfully early, but that's all right. Let's stand for our closing song and prayer.